0: This episode of The Candor Frame is sponsored by Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. Countless photographers have produced bodies of work in the American South. Photographers like Walker Evans, Eudora Welty, William Eggleston, and Floristine Perrault Collins each have explored the South, creating unique and distinctive bodies of work. The region's beauty, history, and lingering contradictions make it an incredibly rich soil to turn as a creative. Andrew Moore's Blue Alabama explores the state's legacies and myths in intimate ways that make life more than what might appear in a history book. It's a place that continues to live its history, both good and bad, and that evolves with the complexity of all cultures, especially when it comes to families, where bloodlines are not as cleanly defined as one might think. This is X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, Andrew, welcome to the show. It's it's a pleasure to have you. Uh,
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I really love your your work, especially the work in, in Blue Alabama. Thank you. You know, and just taking a look at all of your work, it's really kind of fascinating your your take on these different locations because you you've you know you traveled abroad as well as, as made photographs in you know in in the United States. But you know, one of the interesting things about looking at your images, especially of locations, is that they seem to be as much about not only just the passage of time. But also how people use a space, or how a space is kind of reclaimed by nature. Correct. And and it really it's it's about not just what something looks like 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 visually, and that's really kind of fascinating. When did you start understanding that that was part of what was inspiring the way that you you would see a scene?
1: I mean, I I, I kind of have to go back to my. Kind of my childhood, my, my dad was an architect, you know, when I, like after church on Sundays, he used to take the family to visit some job sites and places like that. And I got used to looking at buildings in terms of their space. Like, you know, things would be unfinished. Like there would just be a few walls and a slab would be poured. And my dad would walk around and say, okay, well, this is going to be a gymnasium and this will be classrooms or this will be, you know, uh, hallway bathrooms and so even it wasn't built but i got a sense of like imagining what spaces could be so in terms of architecture thinking about architecture is the way space is defined it's not just walls it's not just the structure but the way it contains and the way it creates space so i think i had that very early on so i've always been interested in architecture and also the kind of emotional aspect of of architecture like the kind of of uh, uh, like I like today I'll look at a building and I'll and I'll get a, I'll get a feeling from it I'll get a sense of like what kind of people live there or how it's been used or the history of how it's evolved and so I think that's kind of something that I grew up with in terms of the way architecture speaks to me and the and the kind of narrative aspect of architecture so I, I've had that from an early age and then over time. I've grown to appreciate the way architecture is a kind of witness to history, and it and it kind of tells the story of our times, and then also people's, you know, the people that have occupied the building or re inhabited a building, how they reflect on that history as well. So it's a there's a lot of intersections in terms of the way I look at architecture: spatial quality, the narrative quality, the human aspect of it. The storytelling aspect of it, and then also color is also a very important part of it too.
0: You know, your images in in Detroit, but especially the ones that you did in Alabama, really kind of resonated with me. I live in Los Los Angeles, and it's in Los Angeles is kind of a, a strange city. It's it's <laughs> it's not a city that really has held on to its history correct it's always trying to reinvent itself so there are a right. lot of places that you know that may have had a long history or legacy that had just been sort of mowed down and you know I remember a period during the 80s where it seems like everything was getting stripped out uh, toned down just to make yeah. up for strip malls correct right yeah and there would be very little pockets where you could really go to a, a building or a location or a neighborhood and really get a sense of what had passed passed along. That was always something that really struck me when I visited other locations. Yeah. You know, like yeah. like New York or certain parts of the Midwest where you would see and feel the history of, of a place. Correct. But then, you know, it's the challenge though for a photographer is to be able to more than just document what the place looks like and able to sort of convey that that sense of that passage of of, of time. But what are the things that you found that you gravitate to? What do you look for?
1: Oh well, if I could just speak to the L.A. thing for a second, because sure, when I did my show on Havana back in 1999, uh, Julius Shulman happened to be in the gallery, and came by and saw the pictures and was kind of amazed, and invited me out to L.A. And so I kind of I, I stayed with him a couple times at his place up off of uh, Woodrow Wilson Drive, and I love Julius's. I mean, I wish I could go back to L.A. in the forties and the fifties when he was shooting and the kind of paradise that it seemed to embody and this kind of idea of the future and this, this, this idea of, you know, this trajectory into the future, which was so, which he, he captured so well, you know, and I've shot in LA occasionally and it's tough. It's tough to find the kind of vibe that I'm interested in out there. I really have to dig for it. And because it's also been so used in the movies in so many ways, very very hard. I mean, I, I find pockets of things as you mentioned, but it's a, it's a very tough place for me to to photograph in. And I and I've tried that. I have a couple pictures though. But anyway, um, back to your original question, which was, what am I looking for, or how? Do, can you repeat the question? It's
0: yeah, just, it's it's kind of you, you can you can find a really sort of an interesting looking building that seems to have you know wear and then it feels like it's lived in for right um, right but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to quantify into a photograph that really is as evocative as True. I experienced in 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 the book and I'm just yeah. trying to understand what it is that you're looking to or, or what what you find you respond to that in terms of making a photograph because you're not shooting, you know, endless frames on a digital camera, you're working with large format color film, so you have to be very purposeful about what you're doing.
1: Let's just take Alabama for for example. I got really fascinated by these houses made of very dark wood or they'd aged to a very dark almost like a kind of tobacco brown black color. And it turns out that these houses were made of well, a material called heart pine, which is the kind of center of these ancient pine trees—you know, four or five hundred-year-old pine trees—that you know, when people f- first got to amb- Alabama, started cutting down trees. They're these magnificent old trees. They were used also for ship masts. Occasionally, for me, it was a kind of antithesis to the kind of southern white plantation Greek-style homes that we we imagine we you know have been associated with the South, and and so it was very. Pointed that I was going to use houses that were sort of this dark brown black color that that was that was kind of the metaphor is a kind of antithesis to these large white antebellum homes that you see all the time and been photographed a million times so the color the material and also thinking about the history of photography in the south and taking a kind of very different approach to that in terms of the just the the kind of feel of it, you know this kind of very aged, dark quality, almost gothic in a sense, but not not uh, not like a not like a horror film, just something that had a kind of deep authenticity to it, I would say, so oftentimes i 'm kind of playing against type, but generally the pictures have to have a complexity of emotion like they they'll they 'll have this worn qualities you said, the kind of lived in quality. But then there also has to be something kind of hopeful or something like somewhat like the struggle, the resilience, the creativity, the defiance that all these things have to also be measured into that at the same time. You know, I mean that's why Cuba was such a, an amazing place because you had people living basically in houses that sometimes were missing roofs or walls. But, but their, 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 the, the will to live, the will to persist in that situation is what made it so deeply powerful for me, like the the, the, the kind of despair and hope at the same time. And it's a quality. That it, so I'm looking for a kind of emotional complexity also in the whole situation, the building, the, the person who lives there, how they've inhabited it it's a kind of uh, rich emotional brew that i'm looking for
0: how did you come to decide that uh, alabama was a place that you wanted to explore
1: well it took that project actually took 7 years because i was originally commissioned by a gallery in atlanta jackson fine art that i work i've worked with for many years and they were interested for me to create a portfolio about the south and this was back in about 2012 let's say there, there's a long kind of story behind it, but basically, I scoured the South. I was back because I'd lived in New Orleans. I was in New Orleans. I was in Virginia. I was in the Carolinas, both in South and North Carolina. I was in Georgia, Savannah. I mean, I, 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 Northern F- Florida. I mean, I, I, I kind of visited even Mississippi in the Delta, which turned out to be like you know, Mount Eggleston was kind of everywhere there. Um, <laughs> And I, I kind of came to Alabama because I, I I met some folks who were very hospitable to me, who introduced me around, and then I realized that uh, lower Alabama or the Black Belt, I mean, they're, they're, they're overlapping, but basically, because I was also in northern Alabama at one point, but the, the kind of central part of the state had so much history to it, especially in terms of, like, the whole evolution of, like, Andrew Jackson kicking out the Native Americans and uh, the the planters that came Virgi- from Virginia and the Carolinas and these huge plantations and then after the Civil War the imposition of Jim Crow and peonage and then you know the vicious racism of starting after you know when when Reconstruction ended I mean that's when it began and it went on for almost a hundred years. And then you get into you know, the 60s and the civil rights movement. Anyway, so there was so much deep history to this place. So it had a great historical context. And then it also had the legacy of like this kind of post-civil rights era. Like, okay, well, what happened? What happened in the black, what happened after the civil rights movement? You know, what happened after desegregation, you know, when so many schools were closed and so many people left and, and who stayed? And, and and now you get, and now, especially in that part of Alabama, you have families, black and white, who have been living in, prox- in the same town for generations, who are cousins, who are related. I mean, yeah. sometimes they even have the same last name. And now you have family reunions where the the black cousins have been invited to the white family reunion. And And I just felt, wow, if that could happen in Alabama, that could happen anywhere. So there was a kind of progressiveness in the state that I think was completely unrecognized. We think of Alabama as a very red state, but in fact, there are a lot of progressives and there are a lot of people who are interested in, you know, justice and equality. I mean, look at, um, uh, Brian Stevenson and Montgomery at the, uh, equal justice initiative. I mean, things they've done there again, it had that kind of rich mixture. So, so anyway, the long, long story short is that I spent about three years searching around, trying to figure out which part of the South I was gonna focus on, because I, I generally need a like a a territory, I need like a defined area to work on. And then I finally ended up in Alabama and, and just kind of the path of loose resistance led me to meet all these folks and be introduced and be very accepted. And that's a very important part of working in the South is to is to have personal introductions, to be to to be introduced one person at a time. And eventually, kind of build a network of friends and acquaintances and people who knew you, so I could go back again and again.
0: Yeah, because you're you're going to stick out as, no, like a thor- you know, sore thumb. Oh. You know, with your with your camera, and everyone's going to be talking about you anyway.
1: Yeah, but that was actually good. You know, I mean, I, I, I like you know, I always work on a tri- I mean, I do work handheld now sometimes, but generally, I'm always on a tripod, and uh, you know, so it's not like I'm sneaking up on people. And they, but they would appreciate it, you know, and, but there were times where part of the process is to go and meet these folks and have lunch with them or go to church with them and get to know them and their families and really gain that level of kind of intimacy with them where then I'm, then I'm free to, I love it when people say, okay, just, just do whatever you want, you know, just come in my house and you can, you know, spend as much time as you want, take whatever pictures you want to just do your work. Yeah. And that was great.
0: Even though it's part of the United States, I have to admit that there's very little that I know about Alabama, yeah. you know, other than these sort of snippets of history. Yeah. And especially over the last couple of years, of you know, as politics have become that much more polarized, there are a bunch of assumptions that we make about different people in different parts of the country. Totally. And as a photographer, you have to sort of be aware that, you know, some of that kind of stuff has found its way into your, into your, into your brain. Yeah. But that you have to be able to parse it so that you can do as as honest and as did you know do, to honor both the work and the people correct tell me about you know your your own introspection with respect to your own biases or maybe your own misunderstandings of the place and how that changes you spent three to four years down there
1: that's a very good question that's a very real question because in some ways it was my own kind of coming to terms with race and racism and my own biases in, you know, and, and, and dealing particularly with blacks in, in a context, I mean, in, on their terms and in terms of their, their place, you know, like one of the hardest things was to show up at someone's home, who's an African-American and try like without any introduction, without any like phone call beforehand from a friend, just showing up, knocking on their door or doing you who from the front yard and getting them as a white person to trust me, you know, because the history is that a white person shows up at your home and said, so they're going to try to take advantage of it. They're going to try to get something and you're, you know, they're going to be on the downside. So that was a very challenging situation. Also my white friends in Alabama, this woman in particular, Lucy Hicks, who helped a lot with a book. I mean, she'd grown up there. So she was very comfortable. she, she'd grown up around black people she that that was part of her world it was second nature to her she had no but for me i didn't i didn't grow up there so i i i had to learn a whole way of underst- like understanding the history kind of coming to terms with my own uh, biases i guess in some sense and what i came away with was like just the incredible Bravery of the people in the civil rights movement, the incredible struggle. I mean, if you know, I, I, re- I ended up reading a lot. Uh, there's a book called All God's Dangers that just is like the most mind blowing book about the experience of being black in the South in 1910, 20, 30, About what it, what it meant, how how white people could just take advantage of you, get you in jail, get you killed for nothing without any retribution, and the utter cruelty of that and yet at the same time the spirituality that those folks embraced, the way they would talk to God, the way they mm-hmm. address God from their heart directly, their level of spirituality is what preserved them, kept them going, I, I believe. And that was another revelation, like the the you know, how the presence of God, the presence of the 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 power of believing in and Almighty really is what kept people going in under the worst possible times. Yeah. So it was a it was a, it was a lesson. It was more than just a photo project. It was really a kind of revelation to me about what what those folks went through.
0: And it's only about maybe a generation or two during the time where, when sort of Jim Crow collapsed. Well, that collapsed, but you know. uh we're 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 kind of changed dramatically yeah yeah but what's interesting about the places that you visit is that and and you kind of allude to it a little bit is the fact is that you know you have these generations of blacks and whites that have lived with each other so their families not only are Maybe be related to each other, but their their you know, their families were were shaped by the dynamics of Jim Crow and going even further back to to yeah. slavery, where ownership was there. Is that Correct. they they are all tied together in in a, in a particular all way? And I think absolutely. You know, there's a legacy there that holds them together. That's something that's that for people who live in the city, they don't have that. No, and so it's it's really kind of interesting to see in your photographs. How you see little evidences of that throughout these environments, because even though you're you know you are making portraits of, of 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 people and environmental portraits, but it seems like the good mixture of, of of images just sort of give you little clues to the existence of all of those things in really interesting ways
1: it, it is you know that's a good point i mean because that's i mean i I intend for the work to be it's not editorial it's more subtle and it really is presenting like little facets of of a big story and then hopefully all those little pieces fit into something larger rather than editorializing you know you have to step into the pictures you it's not television it's not doing all the work for you you really have to enter into the frame and and kind of read the clues and then and and every picture in the book is related to some other picture which is related so they all are kind of interwoven in a way there's some, but something you just mentioned made me think of something about. Yeah, the the, the fact is that also the, the, the dialogue about race in Alabama was very honest. I mean, it was compared to like living in a northeastern city where I, I have to feel, that I have to say that jargon and, and certain kinds of language always kind of enter into those conversations and it's often off-putting, whereas like in Alabama, a woman would say, well, you know, 30 years ago, I used to have to go in the back door, but now I get to go in the front door, and that's a really good thing. You know, it was, like, it was just the, the level of honesty. It's like, thank you, just, just say it, you know? You, you know I, I yeah. mean, I, I have to say, the, the, just the way people spoke about their, their racial experiences was so refreshing and so jargon-free, honestly. It was very direct.
0: There's a there's a person that um, stands out throughout the book, uh, which is Pearly. Pearly, uh, yeah, yeah. She's a really interesting character. Tell us about her.
1: Uh, I mentioned this in the book, but basically, um, so she lived in one of these old hard pine houses up on a hill. Very, it was basically a black house, basically with a metal roof, and it kind of foreboding. But Lucy had seen it, and I saw it. And I was like, oh my god, we got it we got to go there. I don't know who lives there, but we got to go there. And so we, we one, uh, this was in 2015. We, summer afternoon we, we drove up into the front yard. Nobody's around. So we kind of gingerly walked to the back of the house and Lucy goes, yoo-hoo, yoo-hoo. you know, because people got guns, you know, <laughs> everybody's got a gun or a dog or both, you know, it's like pretty, yeah, there's a pit bull and a shotgun somewhere. And so this lady comes out and, and she's in like an old house dress and she's pretty old, but pretty, you know, pretty shrewd, pretty together. And she's got, she got a gun under her hip and stuff like that. She goes, well, before I talk to strangers, I just have one question. Do you believe in Jesus? And Lucy's like, oh, yeah. And then she looks at me like, you know, the atheist, like, I had to say the right thing. So I'm like, yes, ma'am, I, I grew up Methodist, you know, I, uh, yes. And so anyway, Pearlie later told me that, that the moment she saw me, she goes, oh, I've known you my whole life. Like there was something there. And she believes, she's like my Alabama grandmother who lives in the woods. I mean, I talked to her on the phone at least once a month. She lives by herself. She's got health issues and stuff, but she's... You know, if the apocalypse comes, man, she's going to survive. She's a tough character. <laughs> but she's she's good. You know, she had worked it as a nurse in Mobile, and she'd been married for a long time, and her husband had died, so that's why she was living alone. And she loved her house, and we just got to know each other really well. And, you know, so this is a woman who called Hillary Clinton the skirt, whose favorite things are guns, glass, and knives, who is an absolute like literal believer in the Bible and the you know, the, the book of revelations is, you know, that's her favorite book. And here I am this, you know, guy I lived in New York for 40 years and, you know, I grew up Methodist, but, you know, I don't go to church, you know, I've got pretty liberal views obviously, but she, she loves me. You know, she had my picture up, she had a little, I, you know, pictures on the wall and she just felt like she had known me for eternity and we were connected and she and, and, you know, I love pearly. I mean, and it's like the weirdest thing. I mean, never thought that this woman living in the backwoods, Alabama and I would kind of hit it off, but we did. Yeah. And we're still, you know, as I said, we're still friends. We talk and, you know, I don't bring up politics too much, but she's very into like, you know, the end times are coming and have you read revelations and are you prepared? And, you know we're going to be together in the afterlife, and she knows you know, but she just accepts me, and I think it's great yeah you know I mean I accept her
0: well, I think that's one of the, the the greatest gifts about being a photographer is the opportunity to meet people that you otherwise would never meet that the yeah. camera gives you the perfect excuse totally to to do that
1: i I agree, I think that is the best part of my of what I do is just because I'm not a studio photographer i'm not kind of making, I mean, I'm, I'm all for people who work in their studio and stuff, but I'm somebody who just goes out into the world and I love knocking on doors, leaving notes in people's mailboxes, um, cold calling or having somebody cold call, just showing up. You know, I've got like a few, a moment to kind of make up, make, establish that I'm like, I'm okay. Like they can trust me, like, and eventually they'll invite me into their home. And I can take pictures of their bedrooms or their bathroom, or I'll get a portrait of them, but you know that there's some i, I guess I, I'm kind of non-threatening in a way or something, but i that's a big part of what I do is 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 getting people to trust me and then gaining access that way, and then giving back and i and I think the secret is to give first, you have to give like give them something mm-hmm. Like you're interested in them. You want to know their story. Oftentimes these are people who, like, like Pearlie, she has a few friends, but she's basically, she lives in a neighborhood that's kind of rough. I mean, she's probably only the only white person around. I mean, she knows her neighbors, but they know she's got guns, and so they don't really come around to her place. Uh, but just in general, you, you, if you express an interest in someone, you're interested in their story, you want to hear them talk. Like, I don't do a lot of talking generally. I I do a lot of listening. I do far more listening than I do talking. And it's a big part, you know, just hearing people's story, being interested, asking questions, being alive to the moment that they're living in.
0: If there is one reason well, I think you should check out our sponsor Charcoal Book Club It's the great selection of books they've offered their members in the past They include titles like Girl Pictures by Justine Kirkland South Central by Mark Steinmetz Black Garden by Jason Eskenazi and All About Saul Leiter by the great Saul Leiter These are books that you will return to many times over as you develop as a photographer gaining new insights and appreciations That's what my collection has been for me and it can be the same for you charcoal book club curates and offers books from great contemporary photographers and as part of your membership each month you'll receive a copy of a new book and a collectible print to add to your collection it's a wonderful thing to look forward to each month they offer free shipping to the us and canada and the uk it's subsidized elsewhere and if you're not feeling that month's selection that's okay you can swap it for a different one of similar value Visit their website and see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to the many of you who support The Candid Frame financially each month. Your contributions have helped us so much over the past year during a very challenging time. Only a handful of listeners contribute to the show financially, which may surprise you, but it's true. If you've been thinking about it, why not take the time to become a Patreon supporter today? It's really easy to do. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Just $5 a month makes a big difference. Thank you, as always, for your support. So over the span of the years that you were there, you would periodically go down there. How, what, was the long, you know, what was the average time that you would spend down there? Would it be a couple of weeks? Or how, how did you sort of schedule it with, your, with the rest of the work that you're doing you know, as part of your normal life back, back
1: well, home? Well, I mean, relatively, Alabama was pretty easy to get to. I mean, I could fly from New York to Birmingham directly. There was like one flight a day. I probably ended up going about 20 times over those three years, three and a half years. And a good trip, like I would go for two or three weeks and then regroup and then turn around and go back for another two weeks. I probably spent about almost four months, four or five months there. So, you know, usually if I go and I shoot for like two weeks, two or three weeks, I'm kind of like out of ideas, out of, you know, out of momentum. I think that's a that's a it's a good like and I work every day so you know after 3 weeks I'm kind of like okay I need to regroup and see what I got and, and and that was one of those projects where the later pictures got better like the first pictures were terrible I made so many bad pictures in the beginning and then once I finally got kind of in the groove and got closer to people and got the kind of access that I wanted it got better but it was tough, tough going. Describe
0: the difference between the bad pictures and the good pictures. What were you seeing or not seeing?
1: So I would say a good metaphor is a bad picture is where you're on the outside looking in towards okay. something, and a good picture is when you're on the inside looking out.
0: And it was primarily the 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 access and the and the sense of intimacy that you were feeling that was that was reflected in the photographs.
1: Yes, and then also. In the beginning, I had like four or five people. And by the end, I had like two or 300 people that I knew to call up or to visit or to visit again and stuff like that. So people were making calls for me at that point, which is what, which is one of like there was a lady named Martha Turner in Demopolis. I mean, she must have called like every family she knew to say, hey, I've got this photographer and can he come poke around in your attic or, you know. I heard, you know, you know, you've got a view in your backyard or something, you know, just, I had a lot of people making calls on my behalf as well.
0: Before this, you did uh, D- Detroit, which I think was the uh, the first project that you had done in the States.
1: No, before um, this was the, the project out in uh, Nebraska, South Dakota called Dirt Meridian.
0: Dirt Meridian. Okay. But I was kind of curious to sort of contrast how you saw the work that you did outside of the United States to the work that you were doing In the States how did you see that that work was sort of an evolution of what you had been doing previously
1: totally totally I think when when one is younger the idea of like going to exotic places and 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 being in something completely completely out of context is very exciting but what I ultimately found was that like you know I was in Cuba I was in Bosnia then I was in Russia and then the last project i did which i never published was i was in china i was in vietnam and then china and 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 the, i mean i spent a month in china and i didn't i didn't get one picture that i liked or there was one picture but it was out of focus or something and and i realized like i didn't know anything about china i didn't know anything about the culture i didn't know the language i didn't know i didn't know what anything meant i was looking at all this stuff and it looked int- it looked kind of cool but i it, I had no personal relationship to it, and so I wanted to come back to my own countries. And and so if I was in a, if I was in a building and there was a bunch of garbage on the ground, I could look down. And I could identify. Okay, that's that's a newspaper. That's a candy wrapper. I used to eat that candy. I I would know, I would know what the garbage was. I would know. I would know. I would know. I would have a context for what I was looking at. And so that's when I decided. Okay, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna to go to Detroit. I got invited by some folks, some urban explorers to go there. And I know Detroit. I I had friends from Detroit. I've been to Detroit before. I'd shot pictures there. I knew people and I knew about I knew the history of Detroit. I mean everybody in America is related to Detroit in some sense through the cars, car culture, uh if not other things, and music. Um so I, I eventually kind of burnt out on the whole idea of doing like Foreign travel and and the kind of exoticism it just it just didn't make any sense to me anymore. So that's why. So I really wanted to come back and focus on my own country.
0: You're from New York. Do you find it difficult to to photograph that locale, even though you are very familiar with it?
1: I took pictures of New York in uh, early. I mean, I've been. I lived in New York forty for forty years, and and in the early days, I I took pictures in downtown Manhattan. That's in the early 80s. And then in the early 90s, mid 90s, I took pictures of Times Square before it was renovated. And after that, I have to say, I did like Staten Island. I mean, I shot all over, but I never really focused on a big project after that. It is hard to photograph the place you live in. Like currently, I'm, I'm working on a new project, which is photographing where I live at the moment. I did a lot of assignments in the city. So I'd photograph like the Chrysler building or I would do Central Park. But my favorite, t- my favorite place in New York was Times Square, the old Times Square. And once that kind of died, I, I, I had less interest. I mean, I think, I always think that there are pictures in New York, but I, 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 it, it became harder and harder to shoot in New York. And also just in terms of getting around, getting access, all the hoops to jump through, just became less interesting to me. Uh,
0: one of your mentors uh, was Emmett when You were in; uh, he had a chance yeah. to study under him um, yeah. when you were in college. Tell us about that experience. What did? What was your takeaway from your time with him?
1: Emmett Gowan changed my life. I mean, I, you know, I somehow got into Princeton. I don't know. Anyway, I thought I was going to be an architect, and I didn't like the architecture program. And I and I, I'd heard about. I was already interested. I mean, I'd had a darkroom when I was a kid, so I was interested in photography. And I'd heard that this teacher and Emmett had only been teaching i i showed at princeton in seventy five he he started teaching in seventy two so in seventy five seventy six when i started i mean he was thirty five years old he's a young guy he was great so anyway, I'd heard about this amazing teacher and i and I got into the class and you know i'd always had a little bit of an attitude, i suppose you know, relating to my dad and certain issues. And here was a guy who who said, you know, like, everything you do is important. Like the way you take the way you take the paper out of the easel and put it in the developer tray, that's a reflection of who you are. That's a reflection of your soul. And the way you take it out of the developer and you drip it off and then you put it in the stop bath, that's also a reflection. Like just the just like the way you the quality of attention that you give to everything defines who you are. And it was a kind of life-changing moment for me to, 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 to embrace meaning through, through doing. Like the way I did photography, the way I treated the materials, made me feel better about myself. Made me, kind of gave me, confidence is the wrong word, like to, a kind of belief in myself and I was also fortunate because at Princeton, you know, most people go to law school or go into politics or, you know, other things. And so there were very few art students. This is in the late 70s. So my year, I, I was like, like the only serious photo student. You know, basically I had three years with Emmett Gowan where I was kind of one of a handful of serious Students. So it was like being a medieval apprentice. I mean, I learned how to use <laughs> uh, an 8x10 camera, how to develop sheet film in a tray, how to shoot an 11x14, what all these uh, different kinds of lenses were, like if it's a Gertz Dagor versus a Apo red dot Artar. You know, I mean, I I I learned everything. I mean, I didn't learn strobes and seamless paper and stuff like that. I mean, I didn't know anything about commercial photography. But I certainly learned about, like, you know, Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, style, and also Robert, you know, Leicas and all that stuff thrown in. So it was such a deep training, and and, and Emmett was a kind of father figure t- for me. I mean, both good and bad, you know, like he was doing black and white. I had to do color. I mean, I I couldn't – some of his students really copied a lot of stuff that he did, and I definitely did not want to do what he did, but I wanted to take his life lessons and really – um, and, and i and ever since I've graduated, I didn't go to graduate school or anything, but I felt like I had such a great education that, um, that it was important for me to give back. So whether it's teaching or whether with my assistants, I'm very, uh, I try to impart kind of give back to them the kind of lessons that I learned.
0: Yeah.
1: So it was a very deep experience for me. Very important.
0: Tell me about um, your process for making for making the books in terms of image selection, design.
1: It's a good. That's also a good question. So I start making, like I I kind of come to a place, and I start making pictures, and then I'll and then I'll start printing them. Usually, I like to print eleven by fourteen mat on mat paper, and I start putting them in a box, and the box gets bigger and bigger with prints, and I have a small group of friends that I share this box with and I get feedback. And, and at some point, you know, I have this publisher in Italy, Damiani, that I worked with quite often. So they, so at this point, I'm confident that, you know, they'd probably be interested in a book, but I need to have a certain, uh, like I have shot for, let's say a hundred days. I need the box has to be at least, you know, 150 prints. I mean, with Dirt Meridian, I had like 500 pictures, but, you know, have a certain amount of work. And then I'll go to, I have a designer named Yo Cuomo, who I really like. She's done my last four books. So I'll go to her and I'll say, okay, here's what I think is a new book. Let's, let's do a, can you help me with, a, with a, just an initial kind of picture flow layout? And oftentimes I'll also print like a baseball card size print that I could lay out on table so I can sequence the whole thing. And in the past two cases, what I did was, I did this initial layout, and then I saw that there were gaps. I saw that there were places that I couldn't make a transition or things that I was missing or I didn't have enough of. And then I'll go back and I'll shoot some more. And then I'll bring that material back into the picture flow. And and hopefully that's sufficient to kind of complete the book. So, so I do a layout kind of three quarters the way through a project. And then I go back out and I shoot more. And then I try to fill in all those gaps in the, in the flow.
0: And of the book. would those gaps be representative of an idea or were they visual graphic connections that you needed to transition from one point to another? Well, what, would, what would those gaps be?
1: So for instance, in Alabama, you know, I had interiors, I had environmental portraits, I had details but I didn't have many landscapes. I didn't have any cityscapes. I didn't have like, like roads and bridges and towns and you know like that like the context. I didn't have any of that stuff. So for that book, when I went back, uh, I focused on. I, I even worked with a drone operator for some of the things in Alabama because that was that was great for you know just I love drones, but it's sparsely used and sparingly used. In terms of a book, can be great, but I needed the connectors. Like I had the, I had like the close-up stuff, the intimate stuff, but I didn't have like the pulled back to give, you know, pauses to the viewer to give them a sense of a context to say, okay, here's the interior of a house, but, okay, but what does Main Street look like?
0: You know, when you're when you're so immersed on a project, you can be blind to certain things. Yeah. So. What helped you in terms of being able to recognize those those gaps and to really kind of understand where it was working, where it wasn't working? Especially, the, you can get very emotionally attached to what you're doing. Correct. And yeah. you and you and you are holding out pictures that aren't good. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, what helps you to sort of move? So, past I all think of
1: you that? have to. There's, a, you know, you need a couple people that you trust, like my book designer. There's a woman named Alice Rose George who just passed away a couple weeks ago. She was very she was very good. I mean, she comes, she came from an editorial background, but she wasn't always the easiest person, but she had good ideas. She could see gaps. So I can't see the gaps. I need somebody to help me see the gaps. Like I can recognize it once it's pointed out to me or I can feel it, but I don't always know exactly what it is that I'm missing. You know, a good editor and a good designer. I I think you just need a couple of people actually to help recognize that. I mean, I don't, and it's, it's kind of like when I start a project, I don't, I don't look at a lot of other pictures from that place. I don't read a lot of books right away. I just want to experience it very freshly through my own, freshly is not really a word. Anyway, I want to experience it in a, in a very uh, unbiased way. But then once I'm into the project, then I'll start looking at other pictures. Then I'll start reading a lot of uh, background material. I, I guess that relates to this picture flow idea, and that you know I have a sense of something, and I'll go with it. But ultimately, you need you need outside references to help with that perspective. Can't do it on. Your, I tell I tell my students you can't do it on your own. You can't. It's almost impossible to edit your own work. Don't even try.
0: You mentioned earlier that you know the inclination to want to go to foreign locations because it's exotic and it provides easy inspiration for you as a photographer, but that it's changed as you've gotten older and you're kind of totally. revisiting. And that's been one of the ways that you've changed. But how have you say you've changed as a photographer, either in terms of your your process or the way that you see as a result of both getting older and also shooting closer to home?
1: I have to answer that question in a couple different ways. Uh, I mean, I think if you look at the the trajectory of my last three books, which would be Detroit Disassembled, Dirt Meridian, and Alabama. I mean, clearly, I'm shooting more people in general these days, and I'm closer. I'm doing more sort of portrait like things. And this is partly relates to the showman thing, where I think the hardest thing to do is do a great architectural scene and then incorporate. A person, a figure, very naturally. Very, it's very challenging to do that, and that's one of my my. I mean, I, I have some work in Cuba that it worked out really well that way. Uh, Russia, maybe less so, but I think Detroit was such a. It was a powerful project for me, but I'm never going to experience another. There'll never be a place like Detroit in my lifetime. Nothing quite like that. Not the devastation, the abandonment, the kind of horror of it on that scale. I, I, I'm never going to see that again. Um, so it made no sense for me to do another book like that. The dirt Meridian book was kind of a challenge because that was about phot- photographing nothing. That's like, how do you photograph nothing? How do you photograph emptiness? Again, it's an American theme, like the kind of wide open, the frontier, the Prairie, the, mm-hmm. the open spaces that there's it's endless space. And yet, you know, the flip side is it's empty, you know, and, and so, and, and then I would say Alabama's more, was much more about my own kind of coming to terms with race in America and what it meant to me as a, as a white person, how, what perspective, what could I add to that as a, as a white person? In a way I've moved closer to, to incorporating the human presence in my pictures more consciously, I still love the low-hanging fruit. I mean, give me an old decrepit house. I mean, I can't <laughs> resist it. I mean, it's like it's like yeah, it's like candy for me. So I mean, I'm always going to have that, but I like to push myself in new directions. For instance, at the moment, I'm I'm I'm. Um, well, you're gonna you're probably gonna ask me that later, but um, so t- getting closer to people, incorporating more people in the pictures, and having them really fully integrated in the narrative of the architectural frame. So I mean I want it all I want I want the architectural narrative and I want a human narrative and I want it all tied together and I want there to be that kind of emotional complexity that I like.
0: Yeah, cuz I for me that's one of the things that I'm I, I'm interested in exploring is I've always been uh, I've enjoyed setting you know sort yeah. of the stage but totally. being purposeful about bringing someone in Is is whoo man that is a challenge because you have to because you got to strike a balance between the two where one doesn't outweigh the other and it is and it's really interesting how you how you choose to place them in relationship to each other with respect to composition but then also being aware about line and light and shape and how all of those things can both subtly and dramatically shift the tone of a photograph
1: absolutely and i think julius was a kind of master of that because you know he'd bring in friends or models or the architect or something and just the way the guy's got a towel around his neck and he's holding the towel but he's kind of turned away from the camera and he's looking over at the girl on the chaise lounge i mean he posed all that stuff but it looks so natural i mean he was he was really good i'm not as good as posing people but i i uh I want them to have a purposefulness in some way, you know, it's very, but I think that it, for me, that's, that's always, that's still the challenge is, is a setting with a purposeful figure in it.
0: Yeah. There are two of the images in the book that I really like, and they're both of uh, people uh, at, a, at a storefront at a counter. There's oh, one yeah, elderly two. white man, man yeah. with a bald head, and then there's a black woman in a similar yeah. store. Yeah. I love those images, and I think that with those two, you really are successful in being able to do that because you you graphically produce a really interesting shot. You also provide context in terms of the relationship between those figures in the space, and that's probably one of the easier ones yeah, relatively to do right. because it, it's there. It's there, right? yeah. right. But, but I
1: mean the- – but I like the fact that they're looking right at me. That that you know, I like eye contact, I think is very important in general for these situations. It's unlike a Julius thing where it's like, oh, that was like a architectural record sort of thing. But those two pictures are meant to be kind of a pair, you know, like past and present, yeah. black and white, obviously, and and some humor also in there. I mean, he's got He's in a town called Pineapple, and he's got a pineapple shirt with pineapple suspenders and stuff like that. And she lived in a town called Pink Bottom, which I think is amazing. Uh, and, <laughs> and her her store was called the Purple Bowl. So she lived in a town called Pink Bottom, but everything was purple in her store. So go figure.
0: And the other shot that I think is interesting is the the of the, of a the fellow in the um in the black cemetery. It's overgrown. Yeah. You know, and that's really a, a sort of an interesting photograph because with that, it's not doesn't come off as something that's purposely posed, but it does elicit some of the things that we're talking about in terms of sort of the relationship between the figure and this and the space, and um, that's the kind of shot that oftentimes I find difficult to see in the moment, right? Because so many things are very are fluid. There are things that are fixed, but also things that are fluid, and then you have to make Choices, almost on the fly.
1: Totally, to, and there's to, the serendipitous try. thing. You know, like he he's he was an elderly gentleman. He was he's a historian and a writer. So he discovered this, kind of discovered was kind of taking care of this former uh, African American graveyard up on near a plantation. Uh, his grandmother used to tell him about it and stuff. And I gave him that stick. You know, and I realized, oh, that's kind of a stupid stick for, but anyway, he liked it. So he's there. And then I realized later on, like he died, like within a year of that photograph and he's thinking about his own death. You know, he's thinking about, I think he was even buried there. So he's thinking like, you know, this is where I'm going to end up when I'm dead. And then just the sun on the side of that tree and that old lens made that pattern and just like just kind of came together. Like there was a lot of stuff that was going on that I didn't even realize at the time was going on. Like he was really thinking about, yeah. And there's that little gravestone, you know, and also trees had fallen on the fence. So the fence is bent, but it's bent in the same shape as the stick he has and, you know, stuff, you know, just, it's a miracle. I, I think good pictures are kind of a miracle. Like you're just, you know, it's kind of a gift. I mean, you got to work, but stuff happens, and and then it's just a miracle. You can't plan for it all.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer for our listeners to uh, discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that that photographer be and why?
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know, I have a a book on my... um, I just someone showed me do you know the photographer John Lair?
0: No, I don't think so.
1: J O H N L E H R. And he has he shoots storefronts. But they're they're like a really interesting combination of like how you take a very shallow space and create a lot of narrative in that space. There's also all kinds of words in the uh in the images themselves. And I think it's a very kind of modern take on the flatness of our culture and yet within the flatness how articulated that flatness is
0: oh i like that
1: so it's surprising like you, you think you've seen work like that but it's actually beautifully consistent i think the book is by Prestel. it's called the island something there's a beautiful essay by george saunders in it and it's, 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 I mean, it's the kind of work you could shoot in LA. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you could do. You could do it really well. Like I like LA in the fog and like atmospheric, but like middle of the day, man. It's
0: tough. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough.
1: It's tough. I mean, early morning or in a foggy evening or something, but otherwise. Woof.
0: Well, thank you so much for making time for us today. I really enjoyed the, the work and the conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: I really appreciate it, too. I, 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 Ibarionex, Yeah, Ibarionics, Uh I am I'm grateful for this opportunity, and th- thank you for this very thoughtful, interesting time with you.
0: Thanks to Andrew for joining us. Find out more about Andrew and his work by visiting andrewlmore.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have allowed us to grow. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Christine Barker, Kate Buckley, and Don Holy Cross for their recent contributions. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the CandorFrame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The CandorFrames audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the OtherMartinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty free music can be found at Incompotech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is the Candid for him.